Um, if you're new with us today, we're especially excited that you're with us today and we welcome you. Um, there are baskets on the ends of the aisles. If you'll look and see if you're on the end of an aisle, if you would take that basket. There are communication cards in there. They are um, helpful to us on the staff. If you would uh, fill those out, if there's any new contact info, if there are prayer requests, we look at those each week and they're helpful to for us to know um, how to help you get involved. So if you do that, that'd be great. Also, there are ushers in the back that have Bibles as well as notes. So if you need either of those, if you'd raise your hand and they're gonna come down and you can get one. Very good. Okay. Thank you so much to those of you who last week filled out um, on the ballots, there were some survey questions and those are really helpful for us to uh, kind of know what you're thinking and some of your comments. And on uh, the comments at the bottom, one of the biggest pieces of feedback that we got were, I'm so excited about moving to the theater. Um, so that's awesome to just uh, read the enthusiasm in your comments. We're very excited about that. And as you can see on the slide here, uh, just to remind you, our first Sunday in the theater is April 2nd with two gatherings, 9 and 11. So um, thank you also for the part on the survey that talked about which gathering that you're planning to go to. So that was helpful as well. All right. Thank you. Well, they, they raided the orphanage at night uh, maybe thinking that the darkness of the night would somehow cloak the darkness of their plan. The children who lived there and the Catholic nuns who cared for them were scattered. Where would they go? There, there was no plan. The Catholic nuns had a couple options. The kids had very few, if any. The orphanage was closed. In fact, there was no orphanage. This is part of the plan, the ill-conceived, frankly, very evil plan of those who carried this out. The local government wanted to be able to say, in order to qualify for UNICEF funds for new orphanages, that actually there are no orphanages in this remote part of Ethiopia. So we need those funds to start new ones. And to get these designated funds, to qualify for them, they did what they had to do in the darkness of night, armed with power and violence. Those who were charged to protect instead carried out uh, destruction and harm. They closed existing orphanages in order to get money intended for new orphanages, with, which, of course, with this kind of corruption, are, were never going to be built, right? This is one of several signs of a government leaning towards, bending towards acts of violence that we witnessed. We also saw signs of religious violence. Later in the week, we would drive by charred ruins of a Christian church, um, which had just been burned recently, one of many, as the uh, religious violence between Muslims and the Ethiopian Orthodox Church increased. Uh, one morning, we were awakened at 4 a.m. by the morning prayers being uh, amplified through this crackly PA system mounted to a mosque about a block away. 
(laughs) only to be matched a few minutes later by the morning prayers being amplified by a crackly, slightly louder PA system mounted to the Orthodox Church about a block in the other direction. It was like the battle of the morning prayers. Even prayer had become a a means of competition, a, a place of violence, punctuated the morning as we tried to wake ourselves up. And so as we traveled several days into this, with violence as the backdrop, we were grateful to finally reach the entrance to what we knew would be a place of friendship. But getting there was risky. In fact, it was so risky that Steve and I got out of the car just in case Rich didn't quite make it. Here's a picture of what happened. share a meal with uh, Father Patty, who was an Irish Catholic priest pastoring a church in Ethiopia. (laughs) And he had a little row of guest homes that he welcomed travelers into. And so here in this wilderness of corruption and violence was this outpost of love and friendship. We've been talking, friends, here at Emmaus for the last month or so about being a faithful presence in a world that needs a faithful presence of love in a world that's marked by division and by violence. We've been talking about ways that we can practice restoration. And I've been sharing some of these thoughts that were all based in a talk that a friend of mine named Greg Thompson gave about six months ago that I heard and I felt like really resonated with our vision to become a church of restoration. And so for the final sermon of this Six Practices series today, I just simply want to ask this question, which is, how do we love? How do we love? And I want to offer two ways that we can actually do the hard work and the vitally important work of loving. And the first way has to do with our approach to community, the people in your life. And the second way that I'll talk about briefly has to do with vocation, the work that you do with so much of your life. All right? So let's start with uh, a word about community. You'd think that we'd have this nailed by now, wouldn't you? I mean, our, our culture talks about community all of the time. Many of us are connected so well through social media. We've got all kinds of opportunities to be a part of groups and clubs. We're almost buried in community, it feels like sometimes. Community is huge in our culture. Everybody talks about community. Uh, many of us are members of different clubs and groups and gyms and teams. However, on the other side of this equation is this interesting dynamic where loneliness is at a elevated level. Depression is at an elevated level. People feel isolated. Um, And these are significant realities, not only in our culture, but in every industrialized culture, it turns out. Every uh, culture that's connected or civilization that's connected with high tech. How does this work, do you think? How does this play itself out? Perhaps it's because our approach to community, like our approach to a lot of things, is selfish. (laughs) It's not loving. It's all about me. A really common counterfeit, I'm going to give you two counterfeits to true community, a common counterfeit to true community, and by counterfeit I mean that it isn't loving, is experienced when we embrace an individualistic approach to community. When I seek community in order to get something, 
when my attraction to a community is based on what I can get out of this. This is when I join a community as a means of self-actualization. This is when I join a group because of something that I want, something that I need. This is when I use community as a commodity, and I just consume it like I consume almost any other service, because I need something. This is why most of the relationships that many of you built with the parents of the kids on your kid's soccer team in the fall haven't lasted, even through Christmas. It's why it hasn't worked out. Maybe a couple of them have, but the reason is because you didn't join that group out of this core desire to build a loving community. You joined that group because your kid wanted to play soccer, and there was nothing wrong with that. But I just bring that up as an example to kind of try to show us how we throw around this word like community, even around a soccer team, and yet it's, it's really it's, it's rooted in something that we can get out of it. This is the common approach to community in our culture. There's nothing wrong with that in a soccer team level necessarily, but it's really destructive when we start to apply that to a community like a church. Often, in fact, most of the time, we approach community initially with our own interests in mind, right? Lots of people start coming to church because they need something, and that's fine. That's great. Church is a great place to come when you're aware of a personal need. So that's a good thing. Uh, the challenge comes, however, in this, that if this is the church is going to be a healthy community, if the church is going to be a loving community, then at some point you got to shift from asking, what can I get out of this? What can I get from this? And you got to start asking increasingly, you start, got to start asking the question, what can I give to this? How can I contribute to this? So we ask these, these are just common questions that we ask without even really realizing it. Stuff like, how was church today? How was the sermon today? And I know what we mean by questions like that, but it's interesting. They subtly reveal how easy it is to treat church community just like another commodity that we're intended to consume. How was that today? It doesn't work, guys. It, it runs out of gas super, super fast. And this is why so many people are unsatisfied with just another sort of religious version of a consumeristic community. This is, I think, this broken approach to community is why we have so many serial church shoppers in our culture who, as grown adults, are asking this, are saying, uh, I'm just not getting fed. Think about that. Grown adults saying, I just wasn't being fed. Church works best, friends, for those who are serving others. Church works best for those who are sharing their resources with others. Church works best for those who are sharing their life with others. Those are the people, those who are oftentimes tired and over-serving, that actually are getting the most good and are experiencing the deepest richness out of church community. The primitive church... Described, was described by uh, Luke, who writes one of the Gospels, in this way. All the believers were together and had everything in common. The word had there, we read right over it, it's almost like they were all Raiders fans, so they all got along. That's not it at all. It was they possessed all things in common. They held all things in common. There was a, there was a remarkable lack of individualistic interest in the early church. This is what set them apart. Church community can be very genuine, it can be very fulfilling, but not if it's all about you and not if it's all about your own personal fulfillment. Community that is truly Christian happens in relationships where the other person is the more important person. That's where Christian community happens, where the other person's needs are considered first, above my own needs. 
This is what Paul says to the church in, in Philippi. It's a very high standard, but it's the Christian standard. This is what he says. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. It's this challenging call to be a part of a community that is all about others, not you. Friends, this is super different from almost anything that we're involved in. The church is unique in the sense that it exists for people who are not even yet a part of it. How many clubs exist for others? Very few. How many organizations get better in your experience the more you are about the other people in the, uh, in the community? Now, a second counterfeit to truly Christian community, and this one's even more subtle. This one, I think, is even more challenging. It happens when we approach community as a tribe, where you build community with those who are just like you are. Now, most of us like hanging out with people who are just like we are. Those who are in our group, our class, our race, our tribe. They share our position or perspective on politics. They cheer for the same teams we cheer for. They eat the same foods we like to eat. We like this because it's easy. It's easier like this, right? The more similar you are to me, the better it is for, for me. And it can feel like really good community, these kinds of situations. It can feel like these are my people. They understand me. I understand them. But there are a couple of problems with this approach, this tribal approach to community. Here's the first. It's really good if you're in, and it's really bad if you're not. If you're in, it works. If you're not in, then it's breaking for you. In the tribal approach, if you're like me, then you're in. If you're not like me, then you're out. And when churches take on this approach, and it's really easy to do, in fact, there's a whole generation of church planters who were taught that the most effective way to plant churches was to target people of the same age, the same race, the same uh, financial sta uh, status, the same basic political perspective. This was the way many of us were taught to start churches. But when we do this, it feels like community, but it actually causes great harm. It can feel like community, but the reality is it actually corrupts community, and this is why. It's because it's not about love. It's about fitting in. And that's a corruption of the Christian ideal. Christian community is about love. It's not about matching. It's not about me and Josh have to root for the same team and vote for the same guy and eat the same foods. I might have nothing in common with Josh, right? The other problem with this approach is that it's simply not Christian. I'll get back to Josh in a second. I'm just going to pick on you. This other, the other reason this, this tribal approach is not Christian is it not, doesn't work. The problem with it is it's not Christian on a basic level. One of the verses that many of you have memorized begins, For God so loved the world. God so loved the world. Jesus died for all, not for some. John's vision of heaven in Revelation 7 goes like this. I looked, and there before me was a great multitude. No one could count. Check this out. From every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation is ours! No. They cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to God. It's His. He gives this gift. He gets to choose who He gives it to. He gives it to all, people from all tribes, all nations, all languages, right? Would it be easier to build communities where everybody was the same, the tribal approach? 
where everybody got exactly what they hoped to get, the individualistic approach, yeah, it'd be a lot easier. But even if it were possible, friends, it'd be a long way from being Christian. Why? Because it doesn't require you to love, right? It doesn't require you to love. The church is supposed to be a vision and a people of real community, a place where people are called to love. Paul's description, where there could be Jews and Gentiles, slaves and slave owners, male and female, in other words, people who are really different. These are early church examples of really different groups of people, but they could be all together. Why? Because they have one thing in common, which is Christ. A basic love for Christ, or maybe not even there yet, a basic acknowledgement of a need for Christ. So back to Josh. I don't have to agree with Josh on anything, except we both know we need Jesus. And that's the church. That's the church. That's what Christian community is. I don't have to have anything in common with any of you, except an understanding that I am a person in need of Jesus. And if you understand that and I understand that, then guess what? We become the church. And we can have community centered around Jesus, not around our favorite athletic team, our perspective on this issue, our favorite kind of food, how much money we make. One author that I respect has a new book out. It's called The Fellowship of the Difference, T.S. It's interesting. It's a really interesting title. That is the church, the fellowship of people who have a lot of things that are different and one thing that is in common. Amen? So why does our approach to community matter? Why is it important that we engage in community that is Christian? In other words, that is loving, that is about loving, that is not, in other words, about getting something, individualistic approach, not about fitting in the tribal approach. It's because only then, friends, only then can we offer restoration to the world. We have nothing to offer if it were just another group where you need to fit in. We just don't. Some will fit and they'll be, oh, this will be great for them. Many won't and it won't work at all for them. We only have something to offer if we're offering something that is truly Christian. A better alternative to consumerism and a better alternative to tribalism. Or you might say nationalism. We must offer a, not a counter-cultural perspective, but another cultural perspective. A different way of gathering, a different source, a different purpose. We should have a robust answer to the question, how do we love? We should be that answer. We should be demonstrating to people a different way of living where we don't even have to have much in common. We just have to have Jesus in common. And against this backdrop of uh, violence and, and conflict and selfishness and exclusion, we should be willing to cross that risky bridge in order to participate and build communities of love, of love. So let me break this down a little bit further and talk about two ways that we can actually do this. You look back over the history of the Christian church, and there are several practices, two I want to offer that rise to the surface. How do we do this? How do we build love? First, we got to reestablish households as schools of love because love is learned. Because love is learned. We must devote ourselves to establishing and nurturing households of love. The home, friends, the home. The home is where we learn and daily live out the spiritual practices of heart and mind and speech and service. It's got to happen there, right? Our homes must be more than escapes from the world. They must, we must embrace our home as schools, as a school of love. 
Because only then can we overcome the, um, the individualism that is eroding the church and eroding our culture and eroding our world. Friends, the household is the answer to the individual impulse. The household is the answer to this self-centeredness, this me-first thing, this I'll-get-what's-mine kind of approach, this ethic of taking and not giving that is all around us, us in our world. We must learn loving community at home. It's got to happen there, right? And many of us have been given this resource. Almost all of us have access to this basic resource, the resource of a home. Friends, this can be used to build love. And a second way that we can build love is to reprioritize hospitality as the extension of love. To reprioritize hospitality, the practice of hospitality. In other words, love is not just for ourselves, it's for our neighbors. And the work of the church is not the work of excluding. The work of the church is the work of including our neighbors, those who are different than we are. Friends, where are the hurt going to be healed if not at our tables? Right? Where are the lonely going to find friendship if not in our homes? Where are the abandoned going to feel like they're actually welcomed if not in our houses? Where are the orphan and the widow and the stranger going to be safe if not with us? Where will the world learn a better place, a better way, if not through the hospitality of the church? So when we talk about how to restore all things, we're talking about building communities of love. We're talking about offering friendship against a backdrop of violence. And the best way for you and I to work on this is with this resource that God has graciously given almost every one of us, which is with our home, a place where love can be learned and a place from which love can be shared. You can do this. You got one. You can use this. You can change the world with it. And then a final practice of restoration, and I'll just mention this briefly. So that first part was about community, and let me just hit this final practice briefly here. It has to do not with uh, the people that we live with, but the way we work, the way we do our work. So the practice of vocation. This is the same basic central principle of love, now applied not just to our community, but applied to our jobs. And I want to say that in order for us to restore the broken world, we who are Christian must prioritize the common good in an age of individualism. We think a lot about working for ourselves. It's natural to do that. Some of you have even considered how you could approach your work as a way of glorifying God, and that's good. And what I'm saying is that if we're going to restore what's broken, if we're going to actually heal the brokenness in our, in our culture, we need to approach work as if we're working for others. We need to prioritize the common good above the individual. When much of the world is looking for personal advancement, the Christian must work, yes, for the honor of God, but also for the love of neighbor. We typically subordinate our public duties to our individual priorities. Uh, in our culture, we're encouraged to do right by me, to look out for number one, especially when it comes to our jobs. This is where we usually feel the biggest sense of freedom to just sort of focus on what matters the most to me, right? Just providing for me and my family. And here's the thing, friends. Tragically, as a result, our highest skills, our best resources, are usually devoted to the pursuit of personal happiness. It's tragic. Think about that. Our highest skills, 
our best resources are usually devoted to the pursuit of personal happiness. What a waste. What a, what a tragedy. You have been, many of you, geared up and trained up and equipped and, su- equipped and supported to, to have phenomenal capacity and skills. And I want to say that the reason that you were enabled, served, supported, scholarshiped, mentored, trained, cheered for, was because God wanted to turn you into this specialized, like, servant of the world, where you could make a difference in the world, not just so that you could pad your own savings account. You miss it, friends. We've got to shoot higher. We've got to shoot higher. We can't be satisfied with just, well, I'm just doing really well personally. We can't if we're Christian. We just can't. It doesn't go with, it doesn't go with, it doesn't go together. It's an incoherent sense of identity to say I'm Christian and I'm not working for the, for the common good. Because Christians have always worked for the common good, right? We should reimagine our work. We should reimagine our vocation as practices of restoration, as ways that we can engage in the healing of the world. And one of the ways that we can do this is, is by uh, seeing the broken, right where we're working. We should, in, we should be people who are committed to the common good. We should be people who go to work, not just to earn a living, but to bless other people. We should work. We should literally go to work for the restoration of all things, for the common good. I know in some ways this is a challenge. I also know that some of you struggle to find a sense of meaning in your work. That, that doesn't have to be a mystery. Because there's plenty of opportunities in all vocations to elevate the purpose above yourself and to work for the common good. All right. Before we drove over that bridge in Ethiopia, we thought about it. <laughs> we thought about it. We got out of the car. We walked around. We stood on that bridge. We kind of jumped on it a few times. Right. We weighed the consequences. People walking by shared their opinions with us, right? It's too risky, they said. It's not worth it, they said. Go another way, a safer way, a better way for you. Friends, the way of love is not the safest way. The way of love is not the easiest way, but it is the way of Christ. It is the only way of restoration, the way of love. May God give us the courage and the wisdom that we need as a church, as a church community, which is working for the restoration of all things, to join with Christ in truly healing the broken, in truly bringing good out of evil, in truly bringing people back together again. In the name of Christ, amen? Let's pray together. We need great help in this area, Lord, because the models before us are broken. So many of them are broken. Even some of the models in the church. And so we pray for new grace today to take seriously the teachings of Christ, to apply them again with fresh eyes. But that means I have to, yeah, I know it does. I know it does. But may we have the grace and the courage to follow Christ, to love others, to work for restoration of all things. May our homes be schools 
of love. Places of hospitality. May our workplaces be engines of restoration. Right in the midst of real life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you stand up with me, friends? We want to take some time, as we do each week, to greet one another. It's really important that we embrace one another. I've just talked about that. And so I encourage you, if there's someone that you haven't met, someone you don't recognize, if there's somebody that you're a little bit on edge with, that's who you're looking for, all right? Find them, extend grace to them. Why? Because Christ extends grace to you, right? We'll come back together in about five minutes. We'll continue to process this through some historical practices, and we'll sing again together. May the peace of Christ be always with you. Thanks. Take a minute. Greet one another.